Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This week on Truth and Movies, Jonah Hill goes super rad for his directorial debut, the coming-of-age skater drama, Mid-90s. You do not give my son drugs! Do you understand me? Jesse Buckley is heading to Nashville by way of Glasgow in the country music crowd-pleaser Wild Rose. Because I tell you something, there's no shortage of folk who can sing. And for Film Club, it's back to the mid-90s once again for Larry Clark's controversial kids. Like your face looks troubled. Yeah, well, it's just been a bad day. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, hello there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Truth and Movies, the 100th edition of Truth and Movies. Woo! 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 Woo-hoo! That was a firework. I'm sure we can get some... Firework noises in, providing the woos and sound effects this week. We have David Jenkins. Hey there. And Beth Webb. Hi, Michael. Welcome both. How are we feeling? Old, long in the tooth. Elated that we've made it this far. It's an existential uh, crisis episode. Oh, you're as young as you feel. Who sends us a silver spoon? Or a letter from the podcast queen. Yes. Who's that, I wonder? The queen of podcasts. David. Beth, you can join on this as well, but a quick quiz. All the way back in April 2017, we had the first episode of Truth and Movies. Do you have any idea what the films we covered were? I think I do remember, actually. I think I remember one of them, Mm -hmm. and it was the Guardians of the Galaxy Part 2. Volume 2. Volume 2. And for Film Club, we did American Graffiti. Uh So there were also two other new releases that week. Uh, Another one was a, a sequel in a franchise Starring Vin Diesel and The Rock. Oh, Fast and Furious. But which one? Um, eight. Eight, indeed. Yes. Fate of the Furious. And then the other review that week was a British debut starring Florence Pugh. Oh, um, Lady, Lady Macbeth. Beth. Well done, Beth. Thanks. If my Getting name's in, in there, the title, stealing the final uh, points. Well, if my name's in the title, I'm guaranteed <laughs> to know it. It's, it's the laws of film. Oh, so Beth is short for Macbeth Webb. That's exactly it. Lady um, Macbeth. We'll, we'll call you that from now on. Webb, would you? Anyway, that's the past. Let's look to the present. Or actually, let's look back to the mid-90s. <laughs> We're going to have our midlife crisis by revisiting coming-of-age movies from the 90s or set in the 90s this week. We have mid-90s and kids. Let's crack on. Mid-90s. 
Jonah Hill makes his directorial debut with this coming-of-age drama set squarely in the middle of the 1990s, a time of transition both for youth culture and for our 13-year-old protagonist Stevie, who's upgrading from a Super Nintendo to a PlayStation and exchanging Ren and Stimpy for rap. But the greatest change comes when Stevie discovers a local gang of skaters. Their influence on the young lad proves to be considerable, but it's not all healthy, at least not in the eyes of his mum. We are going in. Mom, please. Mom, please. Mom, please. Mom, stop. Go. I was skating all hey. day. Dinner was so. What is your name? What the f? What is your name? F it. Jesus. Listen to me. You do not give my son alcohol. Ma'am, ma'am. <laughs> ma'am, ma'am. You do not give my son drugs. Do you understand me? Cool, cool. It better be cool, head or whatever the your name is stay away from my son he's not like you Catherine Watson there being very frustrated with the 90s youth David should we herald the coming of Jonah Hill director mmm going straight for the jugular there um, I'm gonna say the jury's probably out on this personally I thought this was is gonna go down in the annals of great debut features I generally have issues with actors who direct uh-huh. I don't know why they just always seem to irk <laughs> their films always seem to irk me in some respect or the other and um, this one for me felt like a very very like if you just happen to be living in a bubble and not know who on earth Jonah Hill was mm-hmm. I think you could watch this film and guess that he was probably a an actor by day, director by night, kind of. Uh, why is and you that? don't think that's the uh, strength of the film? Mm-hmm. You think that's an undoing? No, no. I, for me, that was a bit of a weakness. I mean, firstly, I, I guess it, it had a sort of vanity project element to it that was always very present. It felt very kind of. It's a painfully earnest film. I, I found, <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and I don't necessarily mean that in like as a sort of harsh criticism of it. It's shot on sixteen mil, so it has this kind of grainy feel to it. I, I was sort of watching the film, trying to work out why that decision was made. It's shot in Academy ratio, which is mm-hmm. the sort of square, boxy look. Again, I, like to see LA and this kind of quite cramped frame is—it's kind of an aesthetic choice. But I'm sort of lost as to what the reasoning behind it was. Really, um, it's interesting here that Hill. In writing the film, he's referenced kids, which we're going to be talking about later. This mm. is England, Ratcatcher, The Sandlot. There's a scene early on in, in which Sonny comes home after having been practising skateboarding outside on his, like, kids' cowabunga skateboard, like, pink neon skateboard. And um, he comes inside and Catherine Watson's watching Goodfellas on the TV. And... Uh, I think that this is a film that wears its references on its sleeve, I think. And Mm -hmm. uh, there's definitely a kind of Henry Hill vibe to Sonny as he's kind of completely smitten by this kind of subculture that means he's going to need to almost split away from his family and take a kind of more independent role in his life. And it's almost like moving away from one family and joining another family. And in the same way that Henry Hill in Goodfellas is kind of almost like psychotically enthralled to the kind of gangster lifestyle. Sonny, too, has got this kind of instantaneously sees it and is sort of drawn over to it. And there's this kind of feeling that that's it for him. Mm -hmm. He's not coming from a happy home, though. I think that's worth noting. He's coming from an incredibly lonely household. They're very close and the house is very small and they live in very close proximity. But 
Catherine Waterston as as his mum. She's incredibly lonely. They go to a like a chain restaurant for Lucas Hedges's eighteenth birthday, and um, she's oversharing about her love life, and she's talking to them as if she would talk to somebody her own age, which obviously sounds like she doesn't have anyone else really to talk to and then Lucas Hedges is Ian this is my favorite Lucas Hedges role I think uh-huh. and he's done a lot I think he's incredible as this thickly built very lonely very angry young man that barely says a word I think for the He's the got film a bit of a James Dean vibe going on James Dean vibe he's got the Eminem kind of get up with the chain and the shaved head he's very fist forward but also they have a big showdown, him and, and um, Stevie, at the very sort of height of the film. And, and Stevie sort of really lays into him. You don't have any friends. You don't have anybody. And, and that's what brings the big sort of climactic fight between the two of them. And you think, well, yeah, there's no connection within this house necessarily. And so you can't really blame him for trying to seek solace in this this band of brothers. My issue with the film is that I thought with the family stuff, with Ian and with his mother... The film goes from him hanging out with all his skater crew and then you get these scenes where he's returning home and doing, you know, little funny things like because he's been smoking, he'll like pour mouthwash in his mouth and cover <laughs> himself in aerosol. I think it was washing up liquid. Washing I don't up. think it was something as kind as and, uh, uh, mouthwash. <laughs> and, um, but I almost thought you could take all the scenes with those characters out, the family life, and it wouldn't have necessarily been a different film. Like... For me, there just wasn't enough of it to make it worthwhile. This is it. And this was my main qualm with the film is because it's so lacking in narrative, I would have really liked to have seen them push. You've got Lucas Hedges and Catherine Waterston there, two incredible actors in their own right, both very prolific at the moment. And the fact that they didn't utilise them quite in the way I'd hoped, I would have liked to have seen more of a balance between the family strand and then what he does with his with his friends. I mean, you can only speculate over things like this, but like the film is 85 minutes, mm-hmm. I think. It's really short. It just feels to me that that there was maybe some more stuff in there that mm-hmm. was cut out and decisions were made to have it in this kind of slightly curtailed runtime because mm. it, because I think when you haven't got like a a very strong three act narrative it's harder to keep the interest retain the interest even over 90 minutes mm-hmm. I think so yeah I think at, at the expense of that maybe we've lost some of the I mean there are lots of questions that go unanswered the film ends quite suddenly and mm-hmm. it's very much a kind of slice of time rather than, you know, as the title infers, it's just a, a, a moment in time rather than a developed story or a person reaching, going from one point in life to his other. Even Stevie in the end doesn't necessarily, apart from the sort of big change that occurs in the beginning of the film, you don't necessarily feel it that he's kind of come through somewhere. I don't know, it felt really slight for me. Mm. <laughs> but if the family life may seem peripheral to the film, therefore the focus is more on this community of skaters he falls into, young Stevie. This is the third film in what feels like the last few months. We had Skate Kitchen, Mind in the Gap, which also looked at these young communities of skaters banding together. Beth, how does this one play as the Johnny-come-lately of the genre? And also, we have to consider that this is the UK release of this. This film's been out in the US for, Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the US release date was, but it was embedded in last year quite significantly. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate that it's banded together by skateboarding, and there are some moments... Mm -hmm. It's been done to death, but I am an absolute sucker for a static shot of a group of boys meandering down a highway to some beautiful music that gets me every single time and that is the film at its best here I think it's the most assured of the three I mean David you mentioned it's a vanity project and I think 
that's a given with any I mean we've seen A Star Is Born Bradley Cooper absolutely loves himself but it doesn't take away from like the power of the film and on that note very quickly actually there's a film coming out in a couple of weeks called Booksmart uh-huh, which exactly. is di- directed by Olivia Wilde yeah. that for me little teaser but that is an exception I think that is a great movie directed by an actor what about Lady and- Bird what about Mr. Clint Eastwood, one of your faves? <laughs> oh. but, but we should say Booksmart stars Jonah Hill's sister, Beanie Feldstein, Clint, right? Clint's a director who used to act. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think this is a very assured debut. This is somebody who's had an acting career for 15 years at this stage, if you want to feel old. Mm-hmm. You know, he's worked with Tarantino, he's worked with Scorsese, he's worked with the Coen brothers, so you can tell he's kind of absorbed things along the way. He's called in favours. We need to talk about the soundtrack anyway, but he's got this gorgeous score from from um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, mm-hmm. which is very much of the era. I like that his voice is so prominent in this. You can hear it in the script in some of the more kind of colloquial moments between the boys. The humour feels very relevant to Jonah Hill. And I think that confidence kind of exudes and that's what makes it... I'd still like to see another film from him to kind of determine if he is a good filmmaker or not. Mm-hmm. But as a debut, I think this is very assured. Can I just say a few words on the soundtrack? Go for it. Because that's maybe the thing that irked me the most no oh irked yeah no. so the score or the, the pop music on the soundtrack I just felt that correct me if I'm wrong here but the film felt pretty much wall to wall like there's barely a sequence that goes without some kind of music in the background and that's a mixture of 90s pop music that's just played over the top of various sequences and then the score I mean, it's hard to determine what was the score and what was pop music. It's very MTV2, the score, yeah. I well, thought. Yeah, the, the score is out. I've been listening to a lot separate from the film. It's only four tracks long. Mm-hmm. And uh, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross would compose it before or after gigs on a Nine Inch Nails tour. Right. And it really is only maybe 15 minutes of music. So maybe right. that would explain yeah. why you didn't feel it was there sometimes. But it's, it just find, seems a bit weird to me that you've got like this very maybe sort of self-consciously small, low-budget indie film where clearly millions were spent on music rights because, I mean, there is so much music in it. Like, every single scene has some kind of, like, time-relevant banger in the background. It's like Cypress Hill, mm-hmm. Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang Clan, Morrissey's in there. At a that was moment. very bizarre that Morrissey is, is just... <laughs> <laughs> just slap him on they're, the they're end where he belongs. They're winding down the motorway to Morrissey. Beautiful. It's the most of like Morrissey, so... <laughs> oh, okay. But yeah, it's it, like, just in general, I think that that type of filmmaking where you can't rely on the images and you can't rely on the dialogue, and there's almost a feeling that it's kind of overloading the scenes. There were so many scenes I was watching and I was just like this is intended as a quiet moment between two of the characters and it would it would feel like one if there wasn't some kind of like drone or, or some beats um. in the background you know I was watching the film really really wishing it would just embrace the, the quiet for a little bit and almost embrace a sense of modesty but it never did right until the end it was just very like full on music 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 for me a textbook example of like not how to not use music but like you know <laughs> pushing my buttons when it comes to like you know pop music in films it'd be an interesting experiment you should recut it without the soundtrack yeah I, do you know what that is really funny i was actually thinking let's uh, um fax steven soderbergh and get him to do one <laughs> of his little experimental like <laughs> recut without the music i would be really interested to see that because i think it would be a very different and possibly more interesting film mm-hmm. that's more focused on like the detail in the film rather than 
trying to create an atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The music is the detail there. That's why I kind of disagree. I think it romanticizes because this is partly how the film sets off on quite a romantic foot is Stevie breaking into Ian's room despite being told explicitly and with Ian's fists not to go in his room. And so obviously as soon as he leaves Stevie goes into the room and it's this shrine to the era that you can tell Jonah Hill's just kind of lovingly crafted and he's there marking down which music he needs to listen to on these alphabetized I can't even remember if they're like mini discs at that stage or <laughs> CDs. CDs they maybe. are CDs yeah. CDs um, and tapes <laughs> yeah and he's sort of writing them down that and, would and have it's... been cool if there'd been a mini disc <laughs> if, if he'd have had like a shelf of mini discs that would have been an amazing touch. Instant five stars from Jenkins yes. there. But it sets it off in this foot of really idolising the music of the time and then for that to bleed into the film as a, as a kind of ripple effect from that one scene I think is, is really sweet. Mm-hmm. Let's finish up on mid-90s with some scores. I'll come to you first, David. This is In Anticipation, Enjoyment in Retrospect. For me, I'm probably going to give it twos across the board. It felt a little bit of a turn-off for me, like a small indie skate film. And Mm -hmm. there was never really anyone from... I think it was at Toronto originally, wasn't it? No one really came out to bat for it in a way that that I felt was kind of meaningful. So that excitement level never really arrived for me. And it ended up being a film which sadly confirmed my my worst fears. So the numbers? Oh, twos. Twos across the board, Beth? It was four in anticipation. I really like what Jonah Hill's become. Like, I think he's gone from Apatow alumnus to, you know, working with these big directors and now he fancies himself having it go behind the camera and, and I'm for that. Four again, I really liked how he just took instant ownership of this and what David calls a vanity project, I think, went to the strengths of the film. Um, and then three, I think the impact has dulled a little bit, but as I say, I'd like to see a second film from him just to see what his filmmaking is actually all about outside of this kind of romantic notion of a time that he was growing up in. Mm. Anyway, thank you very much, Beth. Anyway, we're over the hill now. We're going to go straight on to Jesse Buckley in Wild Rose. Jesse Buckley stars as Rose Lynn, a Glaswegian single mum who has aspirations of becoming a country music singer. She's undeniably talented, but a stint in prison puts her dreams of making it to Nashville in jeopardy. Is it time for Rose to face facts and come to terms with the responsibilities facing her at home? For the second time this week, we have a mum having her say. This time, it's the one and only Julie Walters. Eight pound an hour. Holidays. Cleaning? Aye, very good. Aye, what were you thinking? Thinking? Oh. Wasn't I thinking? I just got out. Don't you worry about me. No, I wasn't. I was thinking about your kids. I'm going to Nashville. Well, you better mind your tad doesn't go off when you're going through security. First thing the more I'm going down the Opry, I'm going to get my job back and I'm going to work for it. There's nothing for me here. But see, there I can be honing my craft. I can be out gigging every night. Oh, you're cra- do you not think you've sacrificed enough for that fantasy? Have we all not sacrificed enough for that fantasy? It's the only thing Learn I'm good trade, at. Rosalind. Go to You're college. not listening. Cut, hit, I don't care what you do. I would do something. I've got my talent and I'm going to use that. Have you not been watching telly? Julie Walters there with Jesse Buckley. I'd love someone to do an infographic or a video essay or something putting together all of the British accents that Julie Walters has done over the years. I think she's covered every single one now. Do you think so? She must have done. To the point where I don't actually know where she's from. (laughs) (laughs) Does she even know where she's from? Birmingham's a long way away now in the past. (laughs) 
So, Beth, you call this a real foot stomper in your review for Little White Lies. Uh, tell us a bit more about Wild Rose. Of course. So, yes, Jessie Buckley plays Rosalind, who we joined fresh out of a 12-month stint in uh, prison. She returns home to her mum, played by Julie Walters, and her two children. I think one's eight and one's five if memory serves but she's always dreamed of the stage in Nashville and uh, the film kind of explores this battle between her trying to become a good mum and carve a path for a home where she belongs I guess or pursuing her dreams to Nashville and as she says they're honing her craft Mm -hmm. and it worked for you it seems oh my goodness yes so I'm a big advocate for Jessie Buckley Um, I loved her in Beast she was the best thing Mm -hmm. in that not so much because I don't rate Johnny Flynn as an actor Mm -hmm. but um, she was the best thing in that and so I was really excited to see this a little put off by the initial looks it looked kind of cheesy but there's this great I think it's her debut feature script from Nicole Taylor who's written this story about this this mother I was a little bit sceptical because there's a film coming out next month called Vox Lux Uh which kind of explores a similar sort of battle where it seems that a woman can't seem to have a fantastic career and be a fantastic mother at the same time. It always has to be one or the other or vice versa. And in this, they managed to reach a sort of compromise, which is good. But yeah, so it's about her kind of finding her footing now that she's out of prison. And... um, it's just beautifully performed. We've got Jesse Buckley in the central role, bookended by these wonderful, wonderfully written performances from Julie Waters and Sophie Oconedo, who plays a woman, a wealthy woman, who Jesse Buckley becomes a daily woman for. Mm-hmm. Susanna, she's called, she recognises her talents and kind of takes her on as a mission to try and get her to Nashville. Rosalind hasn't told her she's got children, so she's kind of the voice of hope and Marion Julie Waters' character is the voice of reason. And how are her talents? Uh, people who've only seen Beast or maybe some of Jesse Buckley's telly work might not realise that she's trained as a musical theatre actor, so has pipes, right? Oh, and then some. Like, she's got the pipes. I, I, in my review, I, I mentioned she's got this kind of mythical strength to her that comes out when she's performing. There's this beautiful little Glasgow venue where she goes to perform and when she's up there she's not large in any sense of the word. She's quite an an average sized woman, whatever that means but she kind of rolls, there's like a thunder that rolls through her when she gets up on stage and when she's stamping her foot and when she's sort of grabbing the microphone. It's really hypnotic to see. So David, this I must admit country music, not my not my bag. Is it your bag? Did this convince you? Yeah, I used to dabble. <laughs> I, I used to dabble back in the day. I'll echo what uh, Beth just said about Jesse Buckley and being a phenomenon, I think. Like, you watch films with music or you know performance elements and you have these big A-list actors who are kind of mouthing along to someone else singing and you know it's the old sort of singing in the rain thing. And you can never not see it. You always know when someone is actually doing it when there's actually you know there's actually a connection between the sound and the actual person and to see like Jesse Buckley actually singing in this film it just puts a lot of other similar types of performances in the shade i think mm-hmm. because like to see her actually singing and knowing as you're watching that she actually has that talent it just makes it so much easier to invest in in her story mm-hmm. um so that for me was one of one of the film's big strengths she has everything, I think, because she can do the singing and that side of things, that, you know, that's kind of a result of her background in performance. And But she, I think she's also a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. I mean, even in that little clip that we just played before, 
the way that she kind of talks over Julie Walters. It's such a simple thing that you take for granted, but it's like, it feels like a real skill in being intuitive, trying to make a scene sound real and just being inside the character's head. You know, I think, I suspect, and I hope that she's just like, I hope that she doesn't go into like X-Men or something. <laughs> As usually is the path of these kind of actors, like they get a part in a sort of superhero ensemble and we never really hear from them again. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you know, she would be an ex- someone who I would be sort of behind were she in some big Oscar film. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I think, you know, her performance is phenomenal, but like I think the story sometimes is a little bit all over the place. It's a little bit hackneyed, isn't it? How so? I think the film's interesting when we're in Glasgow and there are these two quite lengthy sections where Rosalind leaves Glasgow on a little kind of two voyages of discovery Mm. to sort of find out whether this the feasibility of her dreams. And they're both really bizarre and random and I I never thought that interesting, really, because, like, having her not reacting with the other actors and just sort of like looking around and sort of gazing and being quite happy in a way it was not as interesting mm-hmm. as the more fraught stuff at the, at the beginning is it a spoiler to say who she goes to meet <laughs> you mean the big cameo of the movie the yeah, Samuel yeah. Jackson Nick Fiore cameo it's in the trailer so it's not a spoiler it's Whispering Bob Harris right I mean it's I'm, I was just watching this going what like <laughs> She 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 references like her hero as being Whispering Bob Harris off of Old Grey Whistle Test and BBC Radio. He's probably done shifts on every <laughs> channel, <laughs> and she has this kind of weird obsession of like it's my dream to meet Whispering Bob Harris. <laughs> and you, I'm watching the film going, oh my god, please say this is the film. <laughs> it's one woman's journey to meet Whispering Bob. But she's so sincere, and I think that's what saves those particular moments. There's a especially cheesy point in the film where she's got a tattoo, and um, Susanna says something like, oh, why country? And she says, oh, I'm not going to do the accent, don't worry. It's three chords in the truth, and she points at her tattoo that reads, it's three chords <laughs> in the truth. And if anybody else said that, I'd have thrown up. But because Jesse Buckley is so sincere and committed to this, performance and this woman's love for music and Bob Harris, then um, you just get swept up in it with her. I think you're right there. It boils down to the emotional confrontations and the performances, which are like, this is Tom Harper directing who Jesse Buckley collaborated with on War and Peace, I think mm-hmm. is big on telly work, I think is his um, CV generally. But he's very good at documenting the performances. There's one original song in the film that's co-written by Mary Steenburgen. Wow. Which I love. Back to the Future among other things, Clara also Clayton. half of one of the best Hollywood couples of all time, a.k.a. Ted Danson and Mary Steenburgen. But, um, yeah, there's this gorgeous performance piece that's really beautifully captured by Tom Harper, and if you don't cry it, then what's the matter with you, basically? It's, yeah, it goes tearjerkery at the um, end in a quite sweet way. I yeah. Think. Oh. It's weird that she has, <laughs> like, three chords in the truth that's kind of, like, this idea of country music being primal, simple, emotional, direct... Whereas I think this film could have maybe taken a bit more of that advice (laughs) and just been a bit more, let's focus people. It loses you, but then it somehow brings you back in. And I I think it is down to Jesse Buckley. I mean, it's one for for the annals of like a really great performance in a quite a not perfect film. 
Emma Thompson in the children's act. Yeah. That, that's not coming back. That, that's another one that makes me think of this. Like, for that one, it was more like, I admire you're taking this seriously because I sure as hell can't. Whereas this one is like, yeah, you're taking this seriously, so I'm going to give you the benefit of the okay. doubt and dive in as well. Beth, what scores are we going to give Wild Rose? Uh, so for an anticipation, purely off her performance in Beast, like it was that good a performance that I was like, right, what are you doing next? I can't wait to see what you're doing next. For for enjoyment, I described her in my review, I think, as a human Barocca tablet, just like a fizzing stream of energy that just didn't stop. And then for again, yeah, foot stomping is the word, mm-hmm. like especially the final scenes of are so uplifting and sweet and sincere beautiful performances I haven't seen Julie Waters and Sophie Okunedo do something this good in a while so I'm glad they've had something to sing the teeth and do mm-hmm. so yeah fours across the board David similar anticipation probably go for a four as well because I, I also love Beast were you saying that you didn't like Johnny Flynn or you do oh, like Johnny I did not like Johnny oh, Flynn oh right I quite like I like Johnny Flynn mm-hmm. well, we can talk about that later I love <laughs> Flynn and uh, probably threes for the two it's like I definitely thought the greatness of the performance was keeping me there but there were lots of little nagging things throughout that was that wasn't drawing me back a bit i felt i'd seen a similar films before shall mm. we say okay well that was wild rose in cinemas this week up next we've got film club which is taking us back to the mid 90s for kids as a person with a very deep voice i'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns but a deep voice doesn't sell b2b and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell b2b either That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. A controversial release back in 1995, this debut from photographer Larry Clark follows a largely street cast ensemble across Manhattan as they overindulge in drink, drugs and unprotected sex. The screenplay was written by Harmony Corrine, who would go on Streck Gummo and Spring Breakers, among others, and it launched the careers of Rosario Dawson and alternative it girl Chloe Sevigny. Here's a clip in which a kind old cab driver takes a shine to Sevigny's character, Jenny. I was wondering if I could be of any assistance. Maybe cheer you up or something. No, I'm okay, thanks. You okay? Yeah. Yeah, because you don't look okay. You're a very pretty young lady. You just... Like your face looks troubled. Yeah, well, it's just been a bad day. Miss, would I be prying if I asked you what was wrong? Would I be prying? Everything's wrong. Ah, not everything. The sun is still shining. 
It's a beautiful day out. Some things are okay, right? Yeah, I guess so. Did you just break up with your boyfriend? No. Are you in trouble with the law? No. Am I getting closer? That's better. You look like a brown queen when you smile, a glamour girl. A clip from kids there. So, which way are we going? The Who or Offspring? Are the kids all right or aren't they? David, let's read some listener comments. This is Ben from Devon. Hi, guys. Congrats on 100 podcasts. Woo! Woo -woo. Thank you, Ben. (laughs) Really glad you're talking about kids. I saw it as a 13-year-old. That's (laughs) bad parenting. That's my dramatic pause there, not the the letters. I'm just thinking it's shocking but apt. And it had a profound effect on me. I'd never seen anything as hedonistic or nihilistic on screen. It was equal parts appalled and fascinated. I'll have to revisit it to see if it still has the ability to shock. Can't wait to hear your thoughts. Perhaps Gummo could be a future film club when The Beach Bum is reviewed. Another hard film to forget. On a related note, are you familiar with the story of Harmony Kareen, who wrote Kids when he was 18, getting banned from Letterman as the titular host, caught him trying to steal from Meryl Streep's handbag? This was at the height of his addiction issues. Regardless, he's an interesting guy who seems to have found his way. <laughs> I mean, that's a one way of describing Harmony Kareen. <laughs> Beth? This is a a message from BJ Summers. Remember us, a gang of 15-year-old teenagers walking out of the theatre surrounded by shocked and disturbed adults. Except for the HIV we saw ourselves, shrugged and searched for a sneaky place to smoke a bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Watching now as an adult, dot, dot, dot. Yikes. Fantastic. And now closed circuits. Larry Clark's a weird one. Always felt his holding a mirror up to youth shtick was rather tempered by the sense that he gets off as a voyeur. Same for his photography, but I will say that his collaborators tend to shine, e.g. Ed Luckman shooting Ken Park. And last one, David? This is from Fake Aesthete. A film that is still very truthful in its display of the inner turmoil of being a teenager, while the specific expression of the teenage angst portrayed in the film is exploitative and outdated, does not compromise the honesty with which it portrays a teen's psyche. I love the fact that we have two people here watching the film in their early teen years. Yeah. I will join that that gang. Same, yeah. I I mean, I saw it in 95, so I was like 14. And did you see your life reflected on screen? Yes. No. (laughs) No. But my desire to see the film was purely the result of the moral panic that had Mm. had sort of sprung up around it. It's hard to think now of a film that would cause a similar kind of ruckus. I mean, when we talk about, like, problematic films now, with social media, the films go under the microscope and they stay there for a very long time. Whereas I think a film like Kids, it's a really banal thing to say, but it's hard to know what a film like that would have been like had there just been this kind of churning contra conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it's so provocative. You know, it's hard to sort of second guess whether it still has the power to shock. Like It does for me. I've seen it a lot. So re-watching it yesterday, I was a bit like, am I shocked or am I remembering being shocked mm-hmm. or... Has this kind of worn off on me now? Is it is this all just very performative? And is it transgressive in a way that's sort of performative almost, mm-hmm. you know, like not sincere? It was a very, very weird one to rewatch. Beth, you say you were shocked. I was shocked. I only saw this for the first time a few years ago. Um, I went to a Harmony Queen exhibition in London and wanted to find out some more about him and watched it then and was absolutely devastated watching it and then revisited for this podcast today. 
and it's just such an uncomfortable experience. It's bookended by two very upsetting depictions of like statutory rape. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth actually linking back to mid-90s, which we didn't cover quite a scene that's been considered by today's standards a little bit controversial, where Stevie is taken away during a house party by an older girl. The age of her isn't quite known, but she takes him away and is attracted to him because she says that he's the age before men turn out to be bad. A scene which I think is Jonah Hill tipping the hat to This Is England actually. He says that they, that, that scene is that makes a lot of sense. But yes, looks a bit problematic maybe. Yeah, and it's set against one of the sleaziest Nirvana songs <laughs> ever. But yeah, so it's incredibly uncomfortable. It begins with one of the lead characters Telly, I think his name is. It's worth noting as well, people were so convinced that this was a documentary he had to move to London because people found the skate shop where he worked and would turn up and harass him to the point where he had to move away. But it begins with him seducing a, a very young girl in a very obvious way mm-hmm. and then ends with another case of date rape, essentially. So it's very tough watching, I think, is is worth noting from the off. If you've seen Mid-90s and got upset by that scene, do not watch kids. Mm-hmm. Don't watch mm-hmm. it. And it's ruthless and there doesn't seem to be any sense of consequence. It's a very harsh tale of of being young and being poor in New York. It is very beautifully shot, I will say. It's very sensory, although sometimes that's not the best thing. (laughs) There's a scene where you can basically all but smell the musk of the boys as as it's very hot and they're kind of rolling around on a bed together and it's all very sweaty. But yeah, just a really uncomfortable film to reflect back on. It's interesting that you say that one of the things that I got from a rewatch was... So Harmony Kareen wrote this, famously wrote this age 18 mm-hmm. and Larry Clark filmed the script. Larry Clark has come from a photography background. Yeah, he was, was not very, 18 was very, No, this. he was older and he, he was, but he just sort of embedded himself in youth culture. So this, I think, was a very natural progression for him. But what struck me now is how, in a strange way, it's quite a kind of conservative film, mm-hmm. like... And I don't know if whether this is Harmony Kareen or Larry Clark, but it's everything the kids do. I think you're meant to feel disgusted by their kind of amorality. Like you're, you're meant to feel sickened. Even the way that they kiss each other, there's something <laughs> co- there's something very like repellent about it. Mm. Like the sound effects of like slurping are very high in the mix. So like you're almost like repelled and disgusted by everything they do it almost sort of takes that moral panic and builds it itself. The ending of the film essentially says what's happening is terrible. It's almost like a kind of a call to arms. It's it's like a charity appeal. It's like we need to... In fact, I, I believe there's a credit at the end of the film... I need to check this Saying actually. Saying that a fraction of the profits of the film will go towards helping kids in a city area. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it And it actually, it's weird to see that because it is like, there is a sort of charity appeal element to it. It's like behavioural ethnography. Let's look at these kids and observe and then, you know, we as middle-class adults can sort out the problems. This is our case study. It's this really fascinating where it does present transgressiveness but without any radicalism in there. Violence is towards tends to be black characters, the black man who gets assaulted in the in the park by all the skaters. Mm. We have women being sidelined or raped or, you know, etc. I think this film could be called Boys rather than exactly, Kids, yeah. to be honest. Because uh, the focus is on the male transgression. But it, it, re-watching it, and I watched it as a teenager because once I reached a certain age, 
this was a film that was being pushed as, oh, this is the real stuff. This is there's something authentic and gritty about this film. But watching it back now, it really feeds into that American independent cinema trend of social tragedy being the highest form of drama. And looking back now, this has been enshrined almost as the bad boy of of coming-of-age teen cinema. You know, Jonah Hill can cop to it, and nearly every film is now taking notes from its soundtrack, mm. and they even did a tie-in with Supreme Streetwear oh, did a few really? years ago to almost kind of reintroduce it to a new generation. But it really is fits in with Requiem for a Dream and films like that, where tragedy and people going down, spiralling down through drugs is seen as high art, when really this is very exploitative in, really in, in, in retrospect but fascinating to see that this was a time where now we have a, a definition of what teen movies and coming of age films are they're hashtag relatable mm. or they have characters who have their stuff together and they know what they're doing and we have a film last year like Blockers I know you're a fan of that film Beth where the, the kids are Don't bring Blockers into this no but, but it's, it's fascinating that they're, they're kids who are navigating similar territories of drugs and sex and etc but they are more together and more aware and hip than their parents Yeah. whereas in this one you are watching from the position of the middle class moral majority yeah. thinking almost in Maud Flanders from the Simpsons type way won't someone think of these children and help them out it's interesting I, I think that like Larry Clark and Harmony Kareen for me both went on and did much more interesting things okay like as mentioned before I mean I think Gummo is amazing mm. and uh I think it captures something that's a bit that's more objective and poetic that kids maybe is shooting for mm-hmm. in kids. Right at the end of the film, this kind of really nauseating sequence—it's a rape sequence yeah. that that is prolonged and you know just grating and awful—and then it suddenly cuts away to this very strange little montage of like homeless people in New York or, or slightly mad people like walking around in the park like grabbing the air and. And Gummo is more like that as the film, trying to sort of capture some, almost trick you into thinking, you know, what you're watching is real. And then Larry Clark made this film called Bully a couple of years later, mm-hmm. which is very similar to kids in a way, but actually it's far more morally interesting mm-hmm. about this idea of, is it right to take vengeance on a bully? You know, like it asks a question, but doesn't give you an answer. It's a true crime film. And there's something that's really, really like, Bully is a, is a really amazing film, whereas I think this feels like the kind of very easy one for people to get like upset and annoyed and aggravated about and write horrible screeds in newspapers about. But both of the films that they went on to do are, are, are I think, superior in every way. Well, that was Kids. Oh, one, one last thing I want to mention. Go for it. If anyone can remember, are you a fan of the Adam and Joe show? Yes. Yes. Do you remember that they did like? Did they do kids? The kids, the toy kids. Did they really? Oh my god! My, um, a shout out to my friend Francis, who mm-hmm. actually reminded me of this, and uh, I was searching high and low on the internet for it. But the toy kids might be better than kids. I think it's worth looking up. They nail that film. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Let us know if you do find a link or, or wherever it is, some some clips and so on at Truth and Movies on Twitter. At truth and movies at tcolandon.com via email or the comments section at lwlies.com slash podcast. Well, that's the films this week. Beth, David, thank you so much for joining me celebrating this 100th episode. <gasps> if you know who the queen of podcasting is that we need to write to for our plaque, let us know. I think maybe Helen Zaltzman or Terry Gross from Fresh Air could be. Terry, Terry. Let's try and get Terry Gross on the podcast. That'd be fantastic. Next week, we have 
a bad cop double bill here, dragged across concrete, the new Craig S. Sala film starring Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. And in Film Club, we have Dirty Harry starring that guy who used to be an actor before he was a director, according to David Jenkins, Clint Eastwood. And then also Greta, Neil Jordan's film starring Isabel Huppert. Let us know what you think about Dirty Harry at the usual channels. Thank you for listening. Here's to another hundred. I'm Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. 